For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. Hey, everyone. I am very excited about this upcoming month of episodes on history this week. Because we're doing a special mini-series. It's all about exploration and adventure. We want to take the chance to appreciate this vast, amazing world through our headphones, especially while so many of us are stuck at home. So we will be going on trips by air, land, and sea, and even one trip by rocket into space. You can ride along with us through these groundbreaking moments in the past from wherever you are. So let's jump in and see the world. History This Week, April 6th, 1924. I'm Sally Helm. Four U.S. Army airplanes are floating on the waters of Lake Washington in Seattle waiting for takeoff. They're a special model called the Douglas World Cruiser, made of wood and steel with a fabric cover. The wings are painted green and yellow. Each plane is named for a major American city, the Seattle, the Chicago, the Boston, and the New Orleans, meant to represent the four corners of the country. These planes are setting off on a dangerous mission to satisfy national pride. The U.S. wants to be the first country to fly all the way around the world. And they're not the only ones. It's a big international competition. The British have already started their around-the-world flight. French and Portuguese pilots will take off later that month. And on April 6th, a crowd gathers to see the American fleet take off. The mood is tense, excited. Most people have only seen planes in pictures. And these planes are trying to do something that the crowd thinks might be impossible. Flying around the world is the ultimate first. They're going into uncharted territory. This is the equivalent in the minds of these people of sending men to the moon and back. This has never been done before. Today, eight men take off on a six-month journey circumnavigating the globe by plane. To the cheering crowd in Seattle, this looks like a bright future. It's the idea that the airplane is something special about it and that it's going to change the world. It changes the world in a very different way than people thought in the early 20s. What did it take to complete this historic flight? And when this new technology went global, what were the unintended consequences? In the early days of aviation, flying a plane felt like an almost mythical feat. 
the uh, first airplane takes flight in December 1903. You know, the Wright brothers flying on the Outer Banks of North Carolina prove that a powered flying machine is possible. Jeremy Kinney is the chair of the aeronautics department at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. He loves planes. I always liked old things and old airplanes growing up. I also really liked history. And so I wanted to study the history of flight. And then I was very lucky to get a job at the Air and Space Museum. Kinney says about five years after that first flight in 1903, airplanes get introduced to the public. They're just these rickety little flying machines. Engines are still being figured out. This is known as the pioneer era of aviation. Then World War I hits. And in its aftermath? You have the virtual destruction of Western Europe. You have the rise of the Soviet Union. And so there's a very dynamic and tense geopolitical situation that exists in the world in the 1920s. And that is intertwined with this enthusiasm for aviation. What can the airplane do? In the post-war period, people latch on to this amazing technology. It comes to represent their utopian dreams. In general, the idea is that the airplane can make a better world. It's going to bring on this air age. Humankind will live in the clouds. They will be joined together by the airplane. The idea of the airplane conquering time and space and overcoming nature, that becomes the theme of aviation in many ways, the 1920s. And the ultimate symbol of that is flying around the world. From the beginning of aviation history, the outstanding aim of aviators was to achieve the longest of all cross-country flights, circumnavigation of the Earth. People start saying, let's do it. Let's send a pilot all the way around the world. It becomes a global competition. The U.S. Army is looking into it, and... You have flyers from Great Britain, Italy... Peru and Argentina trying to make this around-the-world flight as well. This may sound like a silly question, but what does around the world mean? Flying in an airplane for your entire journey around the Earth. It doesn't mean really around the equator or from pole to pole, but of making a journey from continent across an ocean to another continent all the way back to your starting point. It was impossible to send someone around the Earth without making any stops. That actually didn't happen until 1986. But this continent-to-continent flight across oceans, at the time, it was like landing a man on the moon. It would push people's understanding of how far human beings could travel. And the winning country would also get a lot of bragging rights. The military wants to prove its ability to plan an operation, a global operation. The aviation industry wants to prove they make the airplanes capable of going around the world. The United States government sees it as a way to increase prestige. And increasing prestige sells the idea that the United States is a leading technological power. And so, they start planning. They took out a global map. They mapped out their route according to the geopolitical situation. They weren't going to ever get permission to fly through the Soviet Union because the United States didn't support that country. And well in advance of the first airplane taking off, there are Army Air Service officers going that route through our allies, making preparations, getting space to keep fuel and oil and tools and other equipment they may need. 
and planning out the 74 stops that are needed for the flight. Yup, 74 stops. And in terms of time, it's going to take 175 days. So planning the route and the supplies is a major deal. But even more importantly, they need the actual planes. U.S. Army Air Service did not have an airplane that they thought was capable of enduring the conditions around the world. And so there was an initial call for proposals. The Douglas Aircraft Company wins with a plane called the Douglas World Cruiser. These were obviously not nice, spacious 747s with powerful engines. Quarters were tight, there were wooden propellers, an open-air cockpit, meaning no window or anything to defend against the elements. There was no GPS, obviously, no navigation, not even radio. They painted the tops of the wings yellow so that the planes would be easier to see. All the way up until the preparations for the takeoff on April 6th, 1924, they're still kind of working out the bugs with the airplane. Pilots will need to be able to change from pontoons to wheels so that they can touch down both on water and on land. That's a huge problem to solve. And in general, it's just going to be a long and dangerous journey. But hundreds of American pilots are vying to go on this flight. It's the first flight around the world. Each of the planes has a pilot and a mechanic. Each pair is assigned to one of four planes. The Seattle, the Chicago, the Boston, and the New Orleans. And the military picks four really experienced pilots. Major Frederick Martin and First Lieutenants Lowell Smith, Lee Wade, and Eric Nelson. Each of them has flown over 1,500 hours. The pilots pick their own mechanics, and... On April 6, 1924, the Round the World flight begins. The entire nation, as well as the crowds, waited to cheer the first Round the World flyers. They're flying out of rainy Seattle. They wait impatiently for the weather to clear. And on the 6th of April, the military decides the weather's good enough, it's time. A crowd gathers at Sandpoint Airfield on the shores of Lake Washington. And they are in awe of these high-tech airplanes floating in front of them. The people lining the shore of Lake Washington at Sandpoint are seeing these Douglas War Cruisers on floats. President Calvin Coolidge sends a telegram saying, this is a great endeavor you're about to park upon. The tenor there is that this is a grand journey that's about to begin. At 8.30 a.m., the planes start building up speed. Everyone is nervous. There's some doubt. It's not a belief that it's just going to happen. Did they leave at the right time? Are they flying in the right direction? Will the engines stay running? But then? The first three airplanes take off. But Boston can't get off the water. The Boston is too heavy. And they have to take off some items. It was like a rifle and some boxes. Some say there's a case of scotch in there. The Boston tries one more time, and they hit the air. Above the clouds, the pilots can see Mount Rainier. The sun is bouncing off it. They go higher and higher. The crowd on the ground watches them leave. The last cruiser climbs up, becomes a little dot, disappears. And that's the beginning of the journey. It's going to be six months before two of those airplanes 
returned to Seattle to mark the end of that first around-the-world flight. Two of those airplanes. Because the other two will not make it back. The flight around the world is extremely dangerous. There's no GPS. There's no navigation systems. What they can see is what they are flying in reaction to. And so this is a very dangerous mission. From the day the flight left Seattle, all the elements of nature banded together in their attempt to bring failure to eight pioneers of the air and their four Douglas biplanes. The first leg of the flight is Seattle to Prince Rupert, British Columbia. They pass through thick fog, and so they have to fly low where the skies are clearer. At some points, they're just about 100 feet above the water, which means they're in danger of hitting trees on these little islands, of running into steamboats. Finally, after an eight-hour flight, all four planes land on the shores of Prince Rupert. The mayor is waiting for them. He says that they've come on the worst weather day in 10 years. Their next stop is Chignik, Alaska. After that, they run into some trouble. They're working their way across the southern end of Alaska into the Aleutians, in dense fog, flying in these climatic extremes. And along the terrain, Seattle crashes into the side of a mountain. The pilot, Martin, and the mechanic, Harvey, disappear from the air. And the other three planes... They land, and they go, where is the Seattle? They haven't turned up yet. They must have crashed. And then it's like, well, are they still alive? In fact, at that moment, Martin and Harvey are alive. They've evacuated the plane, made an igloo in the snow. And they use the airplane as firewood to survive. Oh my gosh, they burn it? They burn most of the airplane to stay warm. And they're not injured. They survive for 10 days until they're found by a cannery crew. And so these different canneries are catching fish. They connect with them and they're saved. Meanwhile, the other pilots have no way to get in touch with Martin and Harvey. No way to track them. And they're deliberating. Should we wait longer? Should we cancel the trip? Should we keep going? And they, they wait. And they're waiting through the weather, too. There are these very intense winds in Alaska called willow walls. And they just blow hard and heavy. And they're staying in these shacks, just making it (laughs) a miserable but very Alaskan experience. But eventually... They decide to keep going. And the three airplanes just keep going west. This might sound a little callous, but the military had sent four planes for a reason. They planned four airplanes, hoping that all four make it, but they're also hedging their bets that at least one will make it. So the other three planes cross the Pacific. That had never been done before. And so they make their way to the extreme northern islands of Japan. There are pictures of the crowds that greeted them in Kagoshima. These great photographs, just imagine all these cheering hands, these little flags, and you see the little dots of the world cruisers in the background, they are wholeheartedly received by the Japanese. But there's also some suspicion from the Japanese government. These planes are on a peaceful mission, but it's still three U.S. military planes landing in their territory. The Japanese thought that they might be spied on, but local American companies on the ground helped sort of smooth the relationship. 
And diplomacy was key, because from this point on, they were going to be touching down in countries all over the world. They reach Shanghai, and they are in the river at Shanghai, and they're having to dodge all the chaotic water traffic that make their way into Southeast Asia, present-day Vietnam. The, the crew of the Chicago Smith and Arnold have engine trouble. They're forced down into a lagoon in the jungle. Luckily, they successfully escape from the lagoon. They pass through India, do a little maintenance work on the airplanes, and then continue further west. Remember, this whole time, they're in an open cockpit, exposed to the air. Battling with snow, rain, excessive heat, typhoons, headwinds, and the turbulent air currents of mountain ranges and deserts. Frostbite in one part of the journey, sunburns on the other. They travel through dozens of countries as they continue west. Persia and Iraq, Syria and Turkey, France and England, Greenland and Iceland. And finally, back to the U.S. But on their way over the Atlantic, they hit some bad weather. And the oil pump in the Boston fails. The plane is forced down into the choppy waters. Now, remember, no radio. So the Chicago sees the Boston go down, then flies to the closest Navy ship and throws down a message attached to their only life preserver. It misses the dock, and a sailor jumps overboard to retrieve it. Then the ship sails off to rescue the plane. The military had prepared for this. The pilot and the mechanic actually hop into a backup plane, the Boston 2, and they join the Chicago and the New Orleans for the final leg of the trip. And those crews fly down through Canada into the United States, where their first major stop is Washington, D.C. They land, and President Calvin Coolidge comes out to greet them. It is a major event. They take a victory lap across the nation, land in 14 cities. They touch down, they're greeted by a screaming crowd, handed the keys to the city, and then they're off again. Finally, on September 28, 1924, they make it back to Seattle. And they win the race. These men have completed the first ever around-the-world flight. It's this moment in which the U.S. government says, we can prove what the airplane can do. These pilots are aviation legends. For just a moment. September 1924, this was the biggest thing happening in aviation. But it's lost over time to other events and to other things that happen. You have Lindbergh, you have Amelia Earhart. You have these people that overshadow these military flyers. Those later achievements come on the wings of this first flashy around-the-world flight. Now, we can prove what the airplane can do. And it may have affected the course of these other flights that happened after 1924. There's air racing. There's more long-distance flights. There's endurance flights. And then when World War II begins, there are battle flights. People are seeing planes used in combat. In 1944, 20 years after the Around the World flight, is when you have these aerial battlegrounds in which fleets of aircraft are being used in this global war in a global capacity to effect and wage war. 
planes have gotten more advanced since the last World War, which means they're more deadly. And as World War II proceeds, this utopian vision of planes that people once had, it's dampened. There's questions about, you know, is all this progress good? World War II really brings the reality of what the airplane can do as a weapon to win a war. This is a military technology. But this wartime aviation will also lead to a lot of progress during peacetime. Tarmacs are built all over the world for the war effort, so afterwards, commercial plane travel can really go global. There's a saying in the history of technology that technology is neither good nor bad nor is it neutral. And so there's going to be this dual nature of what the airplane is. Some vestige of the utopian dream does survive. That flight in 1924 led to a culture shift that we're still living with. It introduces this global consciousness that the airplane can go anywhere in the world. If airplanes can fly from North America to Europe or to South America to Africa or Asia, that means it's also connecting people. There's an interchange of culture, there's an interchange of language, and that people are starting to see more similarities in each other rather than differences. But it's harder to look at a plane today and get that utopian feeling. Flying doesn't seem like this mythical feat anymore. In fact, it's kind of a hassle. Plus, we now know that planes are some of the biggest carbon emitters in the world. And recently, interconnected global travel has allowed a deadly virus to spread. So today, we just don't see planes the way that someone might have as they stood in that crowd in 1924, looking up at a foggy Seattle sky, watching the Douglas World Cruisers disappear. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.